Well, it's wonderful to be with you today, and thank you so much for the invitation uh, to speak with you. And Kingsley, thank you for that introduction. I met Kingsley when I first started at Baylor. We were in Nashville, uh, and her dad kept asking her questions and asking her to tell me what she thought about Baylor. So, uh, so I learned a lot from you then, and I appreciate the invitation today. And Meredith, thank you for your work advocating for women in ministry. Uh, our daughter Shelby is here at, at Truett, and so it means a lot to me personally. And I do want to thank the Truett community for for being such a wonderful community for Shelby. She loves her time here. She loves her faculty, her classes, and has so many dear, dear friends, even in the short time that she's been here. And so certainly, as the president of the university, I love knowing that about the culture here at Truett. But as a mom, it means even more that that's the kind of caring community that you're providing for one another here. Well, as Kingsley said in the introduction, I played basketball at Oklahoma State University a long time ago. Um, and our coaches had this conditioning drill that they loved that we would do at the end of practice every day. And back then we called it running suicides. I think now it's more appropriately called running lines. And you would sprint to the free throw line and back and then sprint to the half court and back, the other free throw line and back, all the way to the other end and back. And we always had to do it in time. And if somebody didn't make the time, we had to repeat that set of lines once again. Now, I was by no means the fastest person on the team, probably kind of somewhere in the middle of the pack. But it was sort of interesting when we would run lines like that timed. I would almost always end up being one of the first one or two or three people to finish running those lines. And some of my faster teammates would always make the time, but they never finished kind of close to the front. So it was clear to me that they were really not working their hardest, or they would have beaten me every single time. Well, so our coach didn't think that was really enough pressure to put on us. And so after we'd run several sets of those lines, he would then tell us the first two people that finish get to be done with conditioning, okay? Well, it always amazed me that those teammates that were kind of just barely making the time before all of a sudden were first or second, you know, and got to quit conditioning at that point. And those of us that had been working so hard every single sprint all of a sudden got to just keep running lines until the coach got tired of blowing the whistle. Now, let me tell you, that was unbelievably frustrating. Those of us working the hardest, it felt like we were the ones being penalized. There were many times when I wondered whether that effort was in vain. Was it really worth it to keep working my hardest when others were not, and when it didn't seem to be making any difference in the coaches' minds? Now, deep down, I knew that those sprints were really helping me. I knew I was becoming a better athlete. I was becoming a more resilient person. But it was really hard to see that at times. But isn't it great? As Christians, we have the confidence that because of Christ's resurrection, his overcoming the grave and death, our work is not in vain. We do not labor for the honor of people. We labor unto glory. Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58 that you just heard. I'm going to begin in verse 58 with the end in mind. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, immovable, always excelling in the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's an interesting conclusion to chapter 15, an exhortation, not just an affirmation at the end of that chapter. 
an exhortation to not be deterred, to not stop short in the race, to finish those sprints, to remain steadfast and immovable, knowing that they rest in Christ's firm foundation. Paul goes on after that exhortation to encourage the Corinthians to excel in the work of the Lord because their labor is not in vain. Now, I expect that in your ministry, you may at times feel like your work is in vain. When that youth group member that you've been discipling for hours rejects Christ just as they go off to college, or that struggling couple that you've been counseling uh, for years decides to file, file for divorce, or the family you're ministering to in the hospital that has a dying loved one rails against God and asks you to leave them alone, or the alcoholic that you've been trying to get to seek help is arrested for abusing their spouse. The work of ministry, particularly in this past year where we've all been separated and much of that ministry has had to happen remotely, may at times cause you to feel like your work is in vain. And you may even question if it is worth continuing in ministry. Is this really what I'm called to do? I'm reminded of an experience that uh, First Gent Brad had a couple of years ago, shortly after we returned to Baylor. Now, we were counselors at Canicut Camp when we were in college, and there were times when we were camp counselors that we really weren't sure that the kids were getting anything from anything we were doing uh, as camp counselors. Well, during one of those summers at Canicuck, Brad got a letter from his dad asking him to write a note to this young man who was probably a second or third grader at the time who had watched him play basketball at OSU and loved OSU basketball. So Brad got out his Canicuck notepad and wrote a quick note to the young man that said, best wishes to you and God bless Brad Livingstone, OSU number 34. That was his basketball jersey number. Brad then put the note in the mail to his dad, and his dad sent it off to this young man. Well, fast forward like 40-plus years. Brad and I had returned to Baylor, as I was named president, and we were at a Baylor basketball game. The game was over, and we were walking up one of the aisles in the Ferrell Center to leave the gym when this dad and his son come walking down that same aisle and stopped us. And this dad told us the story of having sent a letter when he was in grade school requesting that Brad send him a note. When he received the letter from Brad's dad that contained the note, he framed it and hung it on his bedroom wall all the way through middle school and high school. Now, this young man actually turned out to be a pretty smart young man because he got over his love of OSU and he became a Baylor Bear. Uh, and so the dad knew that we would likely be at that basketball game, so he made a point of finding us after the game so he could share that story with us, and he could thank Brad for how much that note had meant to him through the years. So about a week later, Brad received a package in the mail with the framed note in it. And a letter, which is actually here on the back, he attached it to the back, uh, and this is what, part of what the note said. It said, I thought I would send it your way. Maybe it's a good reminder for you and Dr. Livingstone that at one point you were actually more famous than her. <laughs> so. 
So each spring, uh, we host a commissioning service here at Baylor for our students that are going off to be camp counselors around the country and around the world. So Brad actually uses this story to encourage our students at this event about how important the small things are that, they doing, that they're doing in the lives of the counselors or in the campers and to trust that what they're doing is making a difference even if they may never know what kind of difference they happen to be making. And while this is a really wonderful story of encouragement, I'm sure many of you have similar stories, and it's a reminder that even the small gestures that we undertake can have a really long-term significance on others. Is there an even bigger, more significant reason that we should have confidence that our work is not in vain? Verse 58 begins with the word, therefore which makes it clear that this verse builds directly on the verses that came before it. It's a statement of conclusion based on what was said previously. And as we saw, it's an exhortation and a word of hope. But why do we have this hope? Why do we need to remain steadfast and immovable? Why do we need to excel in the work of the Lord? Why can we trust that our work is not in vain? The answer to this question comes from the previous verses, and the answer is even more significant and more glorious than the experience that Brad had with that father. Now let me do a little bit of stage setting first. Paul writes this letter in response to a report that there's a problem, that there are a set of problems in the Corinthian church. Imagine that, a church that has problems? I'm sure you've never seen that. The list of issues was rather extensive, but chapter 15 deals with a particular doctrinal issue that had arisen. Some of the Corinthian Christians were denying the resurrection of the dead. They had no context for understanding this concept of resurrection. In fact, for those who were Jewish, some of the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, denied the possibility of the resurrection, thus influencing the other Jewish leaders in the city. And because the city of Corinth was a Greek city, the Greek Christians were influenced by, by Platonic dualism, the idea that bodies are mortal and only souls can continue to exist. In fact, the body was something to be left behind gladly, to say good riddance to. The focus was exclusively on preserving the soul. And so, to counter this narrative in this section of chapter 15, Paul provides a fairly deep doctrinal argument that our flawed bodies will be clothed in immortality at the resurrection, which will be the fulfillment of God's long-promised triumph over the powers of sin and death. Now, I'm not going to attempt to unpack all of the deep theology embedded in verses 51 through 57. I'm going to leave that to you and your scripts, professors. I do, however, want us to step back and listen carefully to the language of these verses, the way they speak to the power and the triumph and the glory of the resurrection of the body. It's powerful and hopeful language. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not die. We will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, 
then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, those are really powerful words of triumph and victory and a reinforcement of language that Paul uses throughout the earliest portions of chapter 15, emphasizing that if there is no resurrection, that our faith and our labor as Christians is futile. Everything that we do as Christians stands under the sign of Christ's resurrection. All of our actions are given worth and meaning through the resurrection. All of our theology and practice must find its place in the world framed by the truths of the cross and the resurrection. The resurrection is the necessary foundation for our Christian faith. Over Christmas, I read Kevin Rowe's book, Christianity Surprise. The book focuses on the major contributions, the surprises early Christianity made to the world. That this is what he has to say about the resurrection, one of those surprises, and what he says to those who deny the resurrection and it's important, much like the Corinthians were doing. Some so-called theologians have recently denied the importance of the resurrection. They have thought that you can jettison the resurrection and keep the Christianity. This is utterly strange and false, historically no less than theologically. Let it be clearly said, Without the resurrection, there would never have been anything called Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. For early Christians, the resurrection is the central truth around which all other matters turn. God's story about himself and all that he made is a story about the way in which the resurrection of Jesus catalyzes a new understanding and a new way of being precisely because of the new reality that God brought into the world. Life over death, the reversal of Eden, the hope of the future, and the power of the present. What Rose says here is pivotal. If Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is meaningless. Think about it. Without the resurrection, there would never have been anything called Christianity. Now, as I go through my life every day, and I'm busy on Zoom meetings, and more Zoom meetings, and more Zoom meetings, and answering emails, and talking on the phone, and even as I take time to pray and read scripture, I rarely reflect on the surprise of the resurrection. How would I live each day? How would I live my life differently if each and every day I reflected on the fact that the resurrection, the victory of life over death, is the central truth around which all other truth turns? It's not a huge leap then for me to understand why the Corinthian Christians had such a hard time understanding this concept of uh, the resurrection of the body. And in part, why Paul's argument in these verses of 1 Corinthians hearken back to scripture texts from the Old Testament that foreshadow God's ultimate victory. They needed to be reminded. We need to be reminded. This is the culminating vision of a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21.4 that alludes to a passage in Isaiah. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. 
Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. The Old Testament scripture and Paul's letter to the Corinthians remind us that Christ's resurrection was not for Christ alone, but for all of us in the body of Christ. We will all experience resurrection. It's fitting during this time of Lent and as Easter approaches to reflect on the resurrection and the hope and power it represents for Christians. I recently was reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon, Questions That Easter Answers. In that sermon, King describes visiting Napoleon's grave with his wife Coretta and reflecting on all of the battles that Napoleon won until he arrived at Waterloo where his uh, army was defeated and died. King goes on to say this in his sermon. I said to myself, this is the doom of every Napoleon. This is the doom of every man and every nation that feels that victory can ultimately come through force. In the midst of that, as Coretta and I walked away from that building, I decided that my mind had to go back a little beyond that. It went back about 20 centuries, and I could see a little boy being born. I could see him at the age of 30 years old going out on his Galilean mission. He didn't have any armies with him. He didn't have many followers with him. He didn't even have 100% cooperation from them. For one of them betrayed him, another went around and condemned and denied it, and then denied that they knew him. And all of them deserted him in the end. King goes on, but I thought about it, and I watched him as he walked around the hills of Galilee, just doing good, just preaching the gospel to the brokenhearted, healing the sick and raising the dead, and I just watched him. I looked at him and I said, now, he doesn't have a band following him, he has no great army, he has no great military power, then I can see him go with another kind of army. I can hear him as he says somehow to himself, I'm just going to put on the breastplate of righteousness, and I'm going to take the ammunition of love and the whole armor of God, and I'm just going to march. And my friends, he started marching. I wish I could say this like Martin Luther King Jr. did, but I can't think about it like he would say it, right? And my friends, he started marching, and after he marched a little while, he came to his Waterloo, Good Friday came, and there he was on the cross. That was his Waterloo. But the difference is that Napoleon's Waterloo ended with Waterloo. Jesus' Waterloo ended transforming Waterloo. And there came that third day, and this was the time that he was able to reign supreme. His Waterloo couldn't stop him. He stopped Waterloo. And this became the beginning of his influence. This became the po most powerful moment of his life. I walked away from that building. I could hear choirs singing everywhere. And then off in the distance, I could hear something else singing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. When you're discouraged from discipling that youth group member or counseling with that married couple or the family in the hospital or the alcoholic, remember Jesus and his ministry. Like you, he didn't have a band following him. He had no great army. He had no great military power. But he did have 
just as each of you has, the breastplate of righteousness, the ammunition of love, and the whole armor of God. And that gave him the courage and should give you the courage to say, I'm just going to march, even when I can't see the rest of the story because Christ transformed Waterloo. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is describing that, that surprise of the resurrection, of the body, of God's ultimate victory over death through Christ, the hallelujah moment when we knew that Christ would reign forever and ever. Therefore, therefore we know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain, we, each of you as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, labor unto the glory of the resurrected Christ who conquered sin and death. The Portersgate Worship Project is an ecumenical arts collective founded in 2017 with the mission of being a porter for the Christian church. Their first album was entitled Work Songs and includes the song, We Labor Unto Glory. Even in the midst of trying times, when you question the impact your ministry is having or even question your calling to ministry, know that you do not labor in vain. You labor unto the glory of Jesus Christ and the promise of his resurrection. I share the words of the third verse of this song and the chorus as my closing prayer, and then the worship team will join us to share the full song with you as we close today. So let us pray together. Heavenly Father, help me to know, my heart, my hands, their kingdom-bound glory, where thorns no longer curse the ground, glory, trim the wick and light the flame, glory, my work it will not be in vain, glory, oh we labor unto glory when heaven and earth are one, oh we labor unto glory until God's kingdom, until your kingdom comes. Thank you, Lord, for the hope and promise of your resurrection, for your victory over the grave and death, that we may know that our labor will not be in vain. It is unto your glory. In the name of, your risen, in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs>